Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle 24's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up. Today, the rural villages are better at being sort of innovation engines for the future of our society and for cities rather than the city. And that's a big change. This week, we're putting the spotlight on Sweden, a country that dares to take urban experimentation to the next level and doesn't mind taking a risk or two. We'll be in a northern village where the local community has been playing a pivotal role in creating a sustainable living environment. Head over to a university town known for its architectural experimentation, becoming the testbed for a variety of buildings, public areas and much, much more. And finally, we hop onto two wheels to explore why this continues to be the best way to move around in many Swedish cities. That's all coming up over the next 30 minutes on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. Far north of Sweden's capital, Stockholm, sits the small village of Duved. Although far from the big city, this village is proving exemplary in the way local communities can be role models for sustainable living environments. The Duved model aims to provide local solutions for housing, work, food supply, social services, cultural activities, circular economy, digital services, energy systems and even direct democracy. These efforts will then function as prototypes, as a basis for continued development via upscaling for national and global dissemination. I was joined earlier by Jan Oman, creative director of the Duved project, who began by telling us a little more about this innovative new idea for the village. Duved used to be like even more so the thing to go to. But then Ore came and all the money went to Ore. So Duved has been sort of like the little forgotten sister of Ore. It's nine kilometers away. But it, then I found out, well, this is kind of like New York Soho in 1957, you know, when it was empty, it was cheap and ready for sort of something to happen. It's a very existing village. It's based on people that actually living there. They have nice ski slopes and so on. So there's like the national team goes there for practice. But there was like a very definite feeling that this was a village with the traditional values of the village, which means contact between the people, an idea that they were, you know, together. All these sort of traditional DNA values of a village. And that, to me, became an incredibly interesting starting point because then I could say that, okay, here we are somewhere that could be compared to like these gentrification processes in every city. But I was able to treat it in a slightly different way. You're looking at, for example, how this village can be self-sufficient. So you're talking about food. You're, you've already hinted you're talking about social networks. You're talking about the environment. What would you like to be the outcome of your project with the village? The starting point for me and for the entire project in this was to say, OK, can we look at where we are now? It's digital, but it's also circular. We need to handle climate things and we need to do stuff in a different way and it's not possible really to do this in cities because things are expensive in cities things are slow and and there's a lot of bureaucracy and so on so it tends to be kind of done the old way so with duvid we could look at everything <laughs> at the same time and that sounds strange but we actually started with what could be called a democracy process 
where are you in the process of using this village as a, a laboratory for all of these both social and, and environmental ideas? Don't say using. <laughs> <laughs> working with, let's say working with. <laughs> You're not the big bad scientist, I know. But tell me, wh- where is where are you, where are the villagers at in this process? The starting point is important. The starting point was that the ones that asked me to start looking at this was the municipal real estate company called Årehus. And in Sweden, this is like the basis of the, the Swedish model or the welfare state that we had these municipal taxpayer-owned companies that built all the, uh, what you would call social housing, I guess, or affordable housing. So they asked me, which meant that we had a starting point, which was incredibly interesting in terms of handling social questions. And the CEO who's brilliant. Her name is Helena Olauson, and I knew her really well from before. So that's the starting point. And then what we did, the first thing was to sit in a small little hut (laughs) calling and asking people to come. So we had like the first two days I was there, we met like 90 people and not saying that we had any kind of idea what we wanted to do, which meant that they felt like they were somehow asked to participate. And then some people came in, they were really skeptical and, and said, why should I be part of this? Is this just another consultancy project? And the guy who handles like the elderly he said, well, we don't want this. We just want somewhere to play bull. <laughs> and so we said, okay, then we'll build you uh, somewhere where you, where you can do this. And then he became kind of, okay, this seems to be okay. And then we had four or five workshops quite rapidly involving, say, 10 to 20% of the villagers. And we invited the politicians, but we didn't start from like the usual bureaucratic way of doing things. We just went there and we said, okay, we would like to have you with us, all the people living in David, to, together with you, create a vision of how we could go further. And what's the outcome of that? When you go now to the village, are some of these, is there a new place to play ball? How many of the projects and ideas that you and the villagers came up with have seen fruition? Quite a few, I would say. Well, I mean, this place where you can play ball, <laughs> that's a small thing. We have a new medical center, which is very important. So that was something that they really asked for. Then I've been working quite a bit with food systems innovation, both for the Swedish government and for the US government. So I was running the innovation program for the US in Milan 2015 for the expo. And I realized then and there in Milan that if you want to develop food, for instance, you have all these sort of new food tech companies and so on, and and they're okay. But the big problem is they're not tested on a context. So I realized that if you want to do stuff and do it well, suddenly this format of the village was the perfect tool. So we started a dialogue with a few chefs. We had Douglas McMaster from London coming there, who runs the Silo restaurant. We had Magnus Nielsen, of course, who was running Fairviken, very close to Duved, and his partner Jesper Carlson. And so they, together with them, I started a big dialogue on how can we work with the village as the tool for the future of food. So we started a restaurant that's now owned by and run by a guy called Victor, who used to work with Magnus, who's also very good in regenerative farming. So we gave them a plot to start a small farm, and they actually grow enough to serve the restaurant for a year which means that we have a restaurant that has very different food in summer and in winter. 
So it's kind of like a silo concept, but much more based on, you know, it's not expensive. It's extremely well tasting. And then we, I started to look at how can we make collaborative forms between public food, food for school children, food for elderly and so on, work with the restaurants and sort of get the social part and the commercial part to work together. And that's what where we are right now. And then we had help from some academic institutions like the Umeå University Architecture School. They came and helped us to do studios on location with their master students that really helped us to form ideas. Really, it's sort of a, to make an interplay between the citizens, the politician and the political side and the public side, the commercial side of life in terms of investments and so on, but also the academic world where it turned out, I didn't know that before, for universities can be extremely interesting to try to put studios in the rural areas because you can do stuff that you cannot do again in cities. Are you now able to use this as a, a test case? Are, are people coming from other parts of Sweden or from the Nordic region and beyond to see how you can make a sustainable village to... And I think it's fascinating around the world. Many people are thinking about what happens in rural areas as well as in cities. Are you finding lots of people coming up to the village to see what's happening? It's spreading rapidly, I would say. It's, we have to handle all that. Because they, they're coming to do it, but they're also asking us to come to other places. I'm going to go next week both to Malmö, which is in the south of Sweden, to a city called Karlstad in, in the west of Sweden, and to Umeå in the north of Sweden, where we tried something called the, the Norrlands model, the sort of north of Sweden model which is also where we did actually study how can we take the ideas from this village to a city. And we tried it on Umeå in the north of Sweden. And, and it went quite well. We, we had a lot of attention because of that. So that's what we, we're doing now in Sweden. And then we have all these interests from Europe. And this handbook for Europe will be written that I'm working on now together with the larger team is really based on the, the sort of initial ideas from Duved, but then on how that can be scaled to cities. So it's going to be tried on, I think it's a hundred regions in Europe. And that's that's kind of fascinating. We start with a small little village of less than 1,000 people, and we end up writing about Europe. And that, to me, is a sign of a big change, no? Yes. And, and finally, just tell me, that the people of Duved, are they happy with the outcome or are they feeling like they're in a fishbowl with lots of people coming to to see what they're up to? Of course, they, they are a bit skeptical because highest on their wish list was a greenhouse. And so we decided, OK, let's call Shigeruban. That, that, that's so, and Shigeru came. <laughs> we managed to get together some money and it came and I gave him like a two hour lecture on, on what the plans we had. And he was silent for like minutes. And then he said, I'm in shock. And I think, oh, shit, he's going back to Japan. And then he said, I'm in shock, but in a positive way, because I've realized I, I'm not supposed to build a greenhouse, but a philosophical icon for a circular society. And that's like the best thing I ever heard in my life. But that's a big thing. It's like 1,700 square meters. And of course, that's something that a lot of the villagers are, is this really going to happen? And of course, I say, of course, it's going to happen. But we work in a very sort of process oriented way in the sense that we don't have funding for everything. We take it step by step, which means that getting Europe, the attention from Europe means, well, it's attention, which means that other people can be interested in it. And, and I mean, even companies like IKEA are interested in it. How can you organize a product in such a way? 
And so I'm actually going to talk to them next week because this could be not a model just for like sustainable solutions, but also for a more sustainable organization. I think that's a very important part of what we do. Jan Ullman, creative director of the Duved project there. My thanks to him and also to Jonna Dargligen-Hunt for production assistance. Next, we're heading to the university city of Linköping, a two-hour train ride south of Stockholm, where a fast-growing new suburb has become something of an icon for architectural variety. Wallerstaden is home to a mix of colourful apartment buildings, student accommodation, villas and offices, with no two adjacent buildings designed by the same company. There's also an innovative green space called Broparken, from where Monocle's Maddie Savage braved a windy, chilly day to send us this report. I'm standing on a red-orange coloured bridge called the Tartu Bridge that crosses the stream here in Vallestarden. It connects the north and south of this new district, which is bursting with uh, architectural innovation, as well as some cleverly designed green spaces, although some of them partially covered by snow. More than 60 architecture companies and developers have been involved in creating this suburb over the last six years or so, and there are already more than a 1,000 homes here. It's still growing with hundreds of others planned. And with me on the bridge are a couple of the architects who've been involved in the project from the start. My name is Barbara Vogt. I'm an architect at White Architecto. And my name is Caroline Lindquist, and I'm a landscape architect, and I work at the same company. Caroline, what did this area used to look like before it was redeveloped? Before it was uh, redeveloped, uh, there were just fields uh, with this stream in the middle, gravel on the sides, and no vegetation at all along the river. So what can we see from where we are now, Barbara? Describe how completely different this neighbourhood looks now. It's very different to everything else you would find in Sweden uh, in contemporary urban design and architecture. There was an architecture competition from the beginning in 2012, uh, which was won by Okidoki Architecture. And their idea was uh, to have a large diversity of different people building and different architects um, that is really this variety which is enormous. So if we look around us there are wooden cladded apartment buildings, there are terraced houses painted in cream, pink and blue. Uh, There's some other buildings I spotted on the way here with bright aquamarine and royal blue checks on the side. We have up to seven stories I think and then between those high buildings and the park, the smaller houses, um, everything is just really densely packed and um, so that the urban public urban space, the park in the middle. So the idea from the beginning was very much about letting people meet from like different kind of people that you leave your bubble <laughs> and then you really connect to, to yeah. the people living in your so neighbourhood. So it is quite a diverse neighbourhood. There are yeah. people that have got some of these terraced or detached homes living alongside students, people who are renting in this neighbourhood. Yeah, there's a variety of forms of um, owning or um, renting your, your apartment. So it's really about mixing people Tell us specifically about this bridge then. So the bridge and the green space surrounding it, Broadparkham, was one of the first parts of the district to be developed. We worked with a designer, his name is Johan Kaupi, closely together designing this bridge and it takes its form from uh, like old covered wooden 
bridges um, that you can find uh, in the history, and we transformed it in a into a modern way. So it's a wooden construction for like the bridge floor, and then we have timber um, frames basically that are covered on the side with um, sheet metal with holes in it. It's like a little red house crossing the river or the stream from one side to the other. Yeah, very much. You can see the the Swedish countryside influences mixed with the more urban design with the mesh roof of the bridge. And our idea was that it was not just for like a thing to cross from one side to the other. It was more a space where we wanted people to take a pause, uh, sit down, maybe chat to their neighbours, meet... One a bit funny story, I think, is that I live like 10 minutes from here and my kids, which are teenagers now, they go in the evenings here just to walk around and I'm not sure what they do, but <laughs> they say that, yeah, we went to Wallerstaden again and I guess they're hanging out on the bridge or on the benches along the park. Yeah, so it's it's seen as a bit of a, a popular urban hangout compared to the centre of Linköping, which is more cobbled squares and quieter residential suburbs that consist of lots of blocks that look very similar yeah really and there's so many different kind of spaces where you could hang out so it's really it feels very cozy in a way and caroline tell us a bit more about the vibe that the team was going for around the bridge we can see ducks uh there's a lot of wildlife reeds what were the goals behind the nature side of things the sign that idea behind this stream uh, was to to make it a public park for the residents in the neighborhood as well as uh, people passing by like the students in the nearby university and we wanted it to be a place to visit and stroll along as well as a place where you go and sit on a bench and just recreation and what vegetation did you choose and why? Yeah, the, we got the north side and the south side. We're standing on the south side and uh, they got a different character. The north side is more of an urban park that felt natural because you're allowed, allowed to drive a car on the north side. You can uh, reach uh, the different bridges with a wheelchair. Uh, so there are stairs and ramps and the plantings are divided into different uh, color schemes and you got more exotic uh, plants like cherries and magnolias and the south side on the other hand it's more naturalistic with meadows and more natural trees like birch and uh, willows and uh, yeah so uh, we've got two different characters on the both sides and the, the stream itself and the technology around that, that's all quite unique, isn't it? It's about solving a problem that's common in Sweden. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we work a lot of uh, taking care of the rainwater right now in all the cities. So this river can take up to three metres of uh, rainwater and storm. So it's a stormwater technical solution. So it could be flooded a lot. So it's taking care of all the water from uh, the whole neighbourhood. Uh, It's going through on the north side. It's going into the stream through these tunnels that you can see on the side of the river. Yeah, really subtle hole in the bank of the riverbed with a sort of grate over the top. Yeah, exactly. And on the south side, uh, the water floats uh, naturally into the river. Do you know if any particular things that have worked really well here have been adopted in other parts of the city or other parts of Sweden? Uh, Well, I know that one thing that's unique with this... um, 
uh, river park is that that was established before all the buildings. Uh, so um, when they started to build the houses, the river was already established and all the plants were there. So um, maybe that put some of the ambition higher uh, for the developers. And that I think that it's a good thing to establish a park, a public park, before you start to build all the houses. Rather than figuring out later, oh, where can we put some green pockets? Exactly. And it gives a character directly to the area, um, even under construction time. And I mean, plants need quite a while to grow and become like in the perfect shape. So that was, instead of doing that at the last point and people living here would have lived in a quite a desert area. So it was really nice. Yeah, it wasn't barren when they moved yeah. in. And the building work's still going. A little bit further on, you can see new constructions going up, diggers. Is it mostly more apartments coming into the neighbourhood or how's it expanding? Uh, it's a lot new apartments. There is a school and a new church and a home for elderly people, the one that we designed uh, a while back, and um, probably more daycare for younger children and stuff like that. Yeah, so more facilities for the people living here. So we could come back in a few years' time and there'll still be an even wider variety of things to take a look at. Yeah, and Linköping is a growing city. When I moved here 20 years ago, we had 130,000 inhabitants, now 160,000, so all those people need places to live in, so it will continue to develop over a long time well one other tip off i've had is that there's an excellent ice cream shop so despite the chilly temperatures i'm going to go and check that out and say thank you so much and goodbye to barbara and caroline thank you thank you my thanks to maddie savage there reporting from lynn sherping Lastly today, we wanted to jump on our bicycle to see how Sweden is keeping up with its Nordic neighbours in promoting the two-wheeled option for getting around its cities. The city of Helsingborg was recently named the country's best city for cycling promotion. So to tell us how they did it and what the rest of the continent could learn from them, I'm now joined by Henk Swartow, the president of the European Cyclist Federation. Henk, thank you for joining us. Now... You're originally from the Netherlands, one of the shining examples of a cycle-friendly country. But we're talking today about Sweden. Tell us, what are Swedish cities getting right when it comes to promoting cycling? Basically, what the Swedes do right is that they realise that infrastructure is not enough. I mean, we always say, if you build it, they will come. Or we say, if you build it, we will come. But infrastructure is not enough. You need legislation, legislation which protects the safety of people who cycle. But you also need to work on the culture. We have for about 100 years, not least in Sweden, we have created a car-based mobility culture or transport culture, if you like. If you want to change that, you have to invest in education, in training, in incentives, cycle-to-work program, bike-to-school program, and particularly focus on young people. That is very important, and that is something that's happening in Sweden. Now, the city of Helsingborg has been put in the spotlight because it did win an award for being the best city at promoting cycling to its residents. And they've done some amazing things. And one of the things that caught my eye was this idea of being a test cyclist, which was a project that I think the Lund University used to try and get people to shift away from their cars to cycling. And just by getting people to have a go at being on a bicycle. Is this a barrier that many people think, I don't know, I'm not sure that I'm a cyclist and they don't want to spend the money on a bike to find out? 
Indeed. That's what they did. Uh, I think they had 300 bicycles made available by the municipality for people just to test bike to work or to school or to shopping or whatever. And I think about 80% actually really liked the experiment and went on, continued cycling after the test period ended. But you see it as well in other cities across Europe, across the world, that the bike share schemes, like in London or Paris or elsewhere, give people the opportunity to just try two wheels as a way to get about. And from there, we do actually see people move on to either buying their own bike or subscribing to a bike share scheme. So the threshold, the initial threshold is high for somebody who hasn't cycled at all or hasn't cycled for a long time, not since their school days. Uh, so if you lower the threshold by making a bicycle available for free or at a low price, just to test, that may encourage a change in, in behavior. And actually, it's shown to be working. Yeah. Where do you see the, the greatest reluctance to get on a bicycle? Are those factors normally age? As you said, if you haven't been on a bicycle for 20, 30 years, perhaps you think you're, you're not going to be safe on one. Are they cultural? Are they gender-based? What rules people out of thinking that the bicycle is for them? There's a solid body of evidence, actually, that the main reason why people choose not to ride bicycles is because they don't feel safe. That's for more than 50%, that's the case. You know, and formerly people argued about hills or the wind or the weather or distance or not wanting to get sweaty. But the electric bicycle has changed all that, actually, and has made cycling accessible to people who before didn't feel physically up to it, didn't want to arrive at work all sweaty and red in the face, or there were hills or the distance, etc., the main reason is safety or perceived lack of safety. Well, there are two things you can do about that. One is, of course, infrastructure, building separate safe bike lanes. And the other factor is legislation. Like, for instance, in Brussels, where the maximum speed for cars in the entire city center has been lowered to 30 kilometers an hour, 20 miles an hour. And you see when you have a crash between a car and a bicycle at 50 kilometers, uh, 35 miles an hour, the cyclist has about a 50% chance of surviving without any major injury. But at 30 kilometers an hour, 20 miles an hour, the chance of survival is almost 100%, and the chance of serious injury is 50% lower. So that's where legislation comes in. We need legislation to protect cyclists from other bigger heavier road users just tell me when you look at all of the things that have been going on in places like helsingborg how do you then take those lessons and disseminate them around the world so that people can see what best practice is and act on it elsewhere is your role also as part of this mission to be a bit of a storyteller indeed and also to be a bit of a clearing house for cities and regions who want to increase cycling in their own area. Because, you know, we don't all have to reinvent the wheel. There are best practices to be found everywhere, not least in Helsingborg. And that's why we organize knowledge exchange sessions for cities, for regions, for decision makers, traffic planners and urbanists to exchange their experiences. But the main lesson is, I would say, that infrastructure is not enough. You need a, a multi-pronged 
approach or an integrated approach, if you like, with legislation, with education, promoting a cycling culture, cycling to work, cycling to school, increasing safety, but also make cycling attractive. 30% of car trips are shorter than three kilometers and 50% are shorter than five kilometers. They can easily be replaced by cycling trips with cargo bikes or with regular bikes. But this all requires political courage to reduce the space that we have devoted to motor cars over the past almost 100 years, not least also in Sweden, which is traditionally a car-producing country. Henk Swartau, president of the European Cyclist Federation, thank you for joining me. Well, that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. For more from the world of urbanism, make sure that you subscribe to the podcast so you get new episodes every week. And why not subscribe to Monocle magazine too? And you can do that at monocle.com. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Ribello and David Stevens. And David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, well, here's Sweden's Jose Gonzalez with Visions. Thank you for listening, city lovers. Visions Trying to make sense of an art Trying to make sense of a past To show us how